I have a big and new announcement about our Cracks podcast tour. That announcement is the guests for those tour shows. For the first time, here they come. We are at Lincoln Hall in Chicago, Illinois on April 11th with a live Cracked podcast featuring comedian, visual artist, and Adult Swim infomercial creator Sarah Sherman. Also podcaster and Chicago Reader staff writer Maya Dukmasova and historian Jane Daly from the University of Chicago. Three fantastic people I can't wait to talk to with you in front of you. And next, we are at Amsterdam Bar and Hall in St. Paul, Minnesota on April 12th. My guests will be comedy writer, children's author, hosts of The Hilarious World of Depression, and other podcasts, too. His name is John Moe. And then next up, uh, she's a TBS comic to watch, a Star Tribune artist to watch, and an amazing stand-up comedian. Minnesota's own Chloe Radcliffe is on that show. And finally, historian Elaine Tyler May, Regents Professor of American Studies and History at the University of Minnesota. I hope you're as excited about those folks as I am, because uh, these are going to be amazing shows for our tour because of these amazing guests. There's more info about them in the footnotes of this episode, and tickets are also on sale down there. I hope you'll join me in my home region of the Midwest this April, and uh, in the meantime, I hope you'll enjoy this episode. Hey there, folks. Welcome to another episode of The Cracked Podcast, the podcast all about why being alive is more interesting than people think it is. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm the head of podcasting here at Cracked. I'm also known as Schmitty the Clam. I'm also known as Schmitty the Champ, and I am also, also wishing you a happy, healthy, and hopefully positive Oscars Sunday. When that comes along, Oscars Sunday. Also, not for nothing, we have a live show Oscars Saturday at UCB Sunset Theater in Los Angeles. Come on out if you can. Uh, but any city you're in, you can see the Oscars if you want to. And if you do, you might notice certain tropes. Because uh, even in these wild times of chaotic host selection processes and horrible presidents probably tweeting something about that, uh, you know, no matter how much chaos there might be, the Oscars are consistent about certain pet things they're into. And maybe the most prominent of them all is a biopic, you know, a historical or modern movie about somebody's life. That's the whole text of it. They get a, a very exciting actor to do an amazing performance at it. And then, you know, you're just lined up for all the awards you can get. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that. It's just what they do. As you look across pretty much any year's nominees, you will see a lot of biopics and historical movies that focus on one person mainly. It's their move. Some years that biopic lean is more prominent than others. For instance, the 71st Academy Awards, all five of the Best Picture nominees were historical films, usually about just one person or event. Shakespeare in Love, Elizabeth, Life is Beautiful, Saving Private Ryan, and The Thin Red Line were all, uh, all about, I think, just two eras and a very specific situation. That was 1999, folks. The movies of 98, you get it. Anyway, I think there's nothing wrong with movies about real people. That That's a, a valid kind of story. I do think those movies create kind of an unofficial hall of fame in the American public's mind, right? Like, if you see there's going to be a movie about someone, that tells you they are important. Maybe they're important for good or bad or anything else, but you know they're meaningful and somebody worth knowing. So this week we had some fun because, hey, there are a lot of important, meaningful people who do not have a movie about them. And why don't we come up with who that should be and how we could do it? That question is more of a thesis. Our topic this week is biopics Hollywood should have already made. One more time, that is biopics Hollywood should have already made. And two hilarious guests are joining me to talk about that, both of them returning favorites of this podcast. You've seen Dave Schilling's writing on The Guardian, Bleacher Report, Grantland, Super Deluxe, and more. You've also heard his voice on, uh, in particular, like past movie-focused episodes of this show, but on a lot of different things. And then Andrew T. is the longtime host and now co-host of Earwolf's Yo! Is This Racist podcast, which is amazing. I hope you're already listening to it. And among other things, they nail uh, they nail covering the level of positive representation in Hollywood, like over time. He's also a writer and, and just a favorite person on our show. I had a great time with these guys, and we came up with a lot of, I like to just think of them as opportunities, right? Like we could just, just be criticizing Hollywood. I think we're just pitching ideas and, and uh, helping them make the best possible movies because then everybody wins that way. So let's go dig in for that. Please sit back or hang up your giant 1980s cordless telephone, because that is what I assume all Hollywood power players still use 
you know, and you will not want to miss these ideas just because you're too busy yelling on that phone or making your assistant go get you Zima, you know, either way, here's this episode of the Cracked Podcast with Dave Schilling and Andrew T. I'll be back after we wrap up. Talk to you then. Dave, Andrew, we are going to make movie magic. This is very exciting to me. That's what Hollywood's all about. Making magic. <laughs> yeah. So I'm glad to be here. Because <laughs> Hollywood, I feel like, uh, is often criticized for, oh, they haven't covered this and that and the other thing with films. Mm-hmm. And their argument would probably partly be like, well, we had to put money behind it. But I also feel like the counter argument is, look how much money diverse movies and interesting movies make. You know? Oh, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, they yeah. should just go for it. But they never <laughs> tried, so they never knew until now. Yeah. And with like existing biopics too, because we have a lot of uh, people to talk about, but I was also thinking on the way into this, like what's the last biopic I saw or the last one that I was super stoked about? Like maybe Lincoln, uh, which is kind of dorky, but uh, oh. a while back. But Lincoln was very good. Uh, Hidden timely. Figures was great. Yeah. Uh, First Man I enjoyed, you know. There, but I, Does I'm, Hidden yeah. Figures count? Because it's like... That's true. It's kind of sort of. It's like a, a story. It was more like a, a lesser known historical. I guess, uh, yeah, that, that's one of my questions is like, how famous are the, are the, do you guys consider like a biopic, like famous or, or like I think singular be, maybe? You can be oh, yeah. any level of fame as long as you have some sort of importance to culture or history. And I also think with Hidden Figures, it's about a specific period of time and a specific event. Whereas the traditional biopic in your mind is about the entire life of a figure. That's not always possible and not always something that you, that happens. Like, yeah, for instance, uh, you know, Nixon isn't, you know, that much about anything other than Nixon being president and that kind right. of thing. Vice tries to be about Dick Cheney's entire life, but very quickly skips past him being a kid and being in high school and college <laughs> and being a failure to then, you know, 45 <laughs> minutes of him destroying the country. So, yeah. you know, it's it's hard to say, like, what really constitutes a, a biopic other than it's about a real person and their real life. Right, right, right. And then, uh, and we, because we've got all these people too. And for a first person, let's look at Daniel Inouye, who uh, Andrew picks him out as is someone who I'm stunned his life story is not a movie yet, partly because of all the action. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's sort <laughs> of like a classic war story. Uh, sorry, when I say classic war story, I do mean except for the fact that it stars an Asian dude, uh, which is like a little less, little less popular. Maybe that's why they didn't make it yet, guys. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Well, how would we describe him? Like crazy, badass Asians? It's a oh, good yeah. way to pitch it in the room. Yeah. Sellable title. Here we go. Yeah. yeah. You know how yeah, they were yeah. rich before? Now they're now, killing people. Now, now they pour and fucking shit up. <laughs> I basically didn't know anything in the story either, but I feel like I don't know a lot about uh, Japanese American shit in particular. That's like a thing uh-huh. that is, you might be surprised to learn. Uh, we suppress a lot of that in the in our education system. That sure, doesn't get yeah. discussed very much. Yeah. Let's see. We would go from uh, almost I- an internment camp to World War II to the United States Senate. Is that sort of fair? Yeah, that's about right. Yeah, He's the Japanese well, he, version of uh, John McCain. I was going to say Bob Dole. <laughs> oh, well. All right. <laughs> What's the fucking difference? Yeah, who cares? <laughs> well, and he did, uh, I was reading about him, but he met Bob Dole in a hospital when they were both recovering from their wounds in the war. And then they were best friends for uh, basically their entire lives. Like, he, he really is very similar to that, maybe much more famous person. I'm yeah. already seeing the scene of them in the hospital in separate beds saying, when we get back. We're going to be U.S. senators. <laughs> That's in the trailer. And you mentioned like he uh, almost interned. He was born in uh, born in Hawaii, which I feel like also maybe especially for young kids in history class, they kind of allied the idea that places like Hawaii were, were sort of annexed by the U.S. in a very imperial way, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was pre-statehood Hawaii. He was born there and then was like a medical volunteer during Pearl Harbor, but then still almost interned for being a Japanese-American. A little bit what you're getting at is if you're a, a person educated in the mainstream American system, you don't really think of Hawaii as Asian. Right. 
you know, but it is remarkably it is, Asian. It's our it's our most Asian ass state. Yeah. <laughs> Besides parts of LA. <laughs> so yeah, but I think that's the thing that would drive uh, drive this uh, biopic really is the idea of expanding what the war hero looks like. I think that's the to me the most important message of this is that like especially Asian American folks, right? And especially at this time when it's literally about the acquisition, you know, colonialism also brings in this element of a type of inclusion, right? Like, yeah, you're Americans now, you know, initially it <laughs> happens at the point of a gun. And then like, but then we are Americans now. I mean, I will say as someone yeah. who, uh, as an Asian person who grew up in the Midwest, one of the most striking things about moving to Los Angeles is seeing old Asian people, often Japanese and Korean, but old Asian people who have no accent, which oh. is like new to me, which shouldn't <laughs> be. It's fucked up that it is, but I'm like, oh, right, because I'm just used to, you know, a certain generation of Asian folks having an accent because English is not their first language. And that's not true for this like hugely underrepresented segment of America. Here, the other thing is, yeah. I mean, this is basically, look, if you're really, if you're really uh, looking for something, just do your um, Mr. Miyagi origin story script and then flip it a little bit and he winds up in the Senate instead of teaching some, some <laughs> asshole from New Jersey oh, how to oh. crane kick. <laughs> like, that's advice for the writer if yeah. they just want to really half-ass this. Yeah, yeah, I'm just saying. Someone's, <laughs> I, I know for a fact there are multiple Mr. Miyagi origin prequel scripts around this town. There's just more a, than one? I uh, oh, don't know. <laughs> told you, you know, you hang out with too many Asian writers and all of a sudden people are like, oh, you got one too? Huh. <laughs> I'm just wondering how many different takes you can have on that specific story. Well, I'm just saying the Did one he where fight crime at some point. The one where well no, he's he's in the internment camp and he's uh, you know, just trying to be American. But is America gonna let him be him, you know what I'm saying? This is a better story, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Stay away from the idea. Don't do the Mr. Mayhawk. No, 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 no. <laughs> Write a whole new script. Yeah, yeah. let yeah. Pat Marita rest in peace. Yeah. <laughs> Who would play uh Daniel in a way? Henry Golding. Man. That guy's taking all the jobs. Yeah, give me a, a name of a movie about an Asian person, and I'll say Henry Golding because that's the only thing producers in Hollywood can see right now. We're he look, even looks like him. Look at that. Picture. We're looking. We're looking at an old picture of uh, of uh, Lieutenant in a way. Yeah, this guy is a real pretty boy. Henry He's handsome, Golding. Yeah. yeah, forget it. It's done. It's too much. All right, well, well he, I'm just going to put my headshot away, but whatever, guys. <laughs> you can try. It's fine. Maybe you can play his cousin. Because also, apparently, there was a ban on Japanese Americans enlisting in the army until 1943. So for part of the war, they, you just couldn't join at all. And then he enlisted, was put in a segregated all-Japanese American unit, and then they faced just incredibly terrible fighting in Europe. And he was in one battle where he was shot in the stomach, kept fighting, then he tried to throw a grenade into a bunker. His arm was shot completely off. And so then he had a live grenade in his own arm in front of him. And then he pulled the grenade out of his own hand with his other arm and threw it through a slit that somebody was shooting through to kill the German soldier. Yes, but uh, can you trust him? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> like, if that was in a Wolfenstein game, you'd be like... This is too intense and fucked up. Right. right. <laughs> like, or just an HBO show. Yeah. Like, yeah. like this is incredible. Yeah. And then, and lost that arm. He recuperated in the hospital with Bob Dole and with another future <laughs> senator named Philip Hart. Uh, and then he was Hawaii's immediately elected as Hawaii's first House of Representatives member when they became a state and then spent almost 50 years in the U.S. Senate. So he's been an important person in politics all of our entire lives. Yeah. And I think most people never think about him. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Well, and and uh, with that casting thing, too, like, it does feel like uh, Crazy Rich Asians has been such an event. And then also just, are, are we, like, so far behind on Asian and Asian-American representation in film that, like... Yeah. It, it's, yeah, it's 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 hard of. to think of like a Who ton of be? casting just because there hasn't been a it's, ton of casting. It's going to oh, take yeah. twelve more crazy rich Asians through yeah. the course of fifty years to get to where we are with black people in movies. And what Dave means yeah. is literally crazy rich Asians two through twelve coming. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sort of like Police Academy, but with Asian people dancing and wearing nice clothes. 
<laughs> oh shit! Yeah, uh, but obviously somebody great can do it, and then and yeah, they would play a, a one armed uh, American hero. It'd be great. It's fucking yeah. dope. I'm in. I will see <laughs> yeah. this movie. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think we're all in agreement. War part, more Senate part. It's kind of an epilogue. The, yeah, the Senate stuff is more like he did it. Yeah, it's the third act triumph versus like the beginning has got to be about. You know, him maybe almost getting interred and then going yeah. to war and proving himself to be a true American. And then, you know, oh, now he's a senator. Yeah. So it's about yeah. what does feel like the. What is American really? You should yeah. feel bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah you should, at the end, you should feel bad. <laughs> Why aren't there more of him? It lends it to being such a good biopic that, like, yeah, the beats are kind of obvious. Like, oh, he did sure. so many amazing things. Like, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And they're so clear, right? It's like, yeah, that would yeah. be the movie. Definitely. I guess like, that yeah. is. A little bit. That's that's the shoehorn of biopics. Is that you got to just go back and pick the events that fit what is the because they're never like complicated like structurally, right? It's always just like that's why there's all the twenty year time jumps. It's like okay, let's just fucking make this biography fit our structure, like no matter yeah. fucking what. Or the opposite, you just pick the one thing. Like the Imitation Game is just about. You know the the creation of the Enigma computer and right, all that right, stuff, right. the code breaking. Oh, that's and stuff, true. You know? Yeah, it's right. a biopic, but it's really just about this one thing. Yeah. Does imitation get? They, do yeah. they show any of the persecution over the homosexuality stuff it's, in the end of it? It's very glossed over. Jeez. Yeah. yeah, it's like touched on a bit. In I the same way yeah. that like Bohemian yeah. Rhapsody is like, well, he was gay, but yeah. look at all the other stuff he did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that one's also produced by the surviving members of Queen, right? And <laughs> just like Agenda City, baby. <laughs> I think that's that's unfortunately an inevitability of yeah. the biopic genre. Is how do you get the rights, and then how do you please the people? who yeah. are yeah. the ones who hold the rights to that person's life. Right, because unless it's a long way back, like like when they made the Lincoln movie with Daniel Day-Lewis, they didn't have like his buddy who gave them the rights as something, the second <laughs> right, right, most right. important person or something. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's oh, there's no Lincoln who's like, oh, my dad was much taller than that. <laughs> <laughs> the mole's in the wrong place. <laughs> oh, man. Let's look at another person here. Dave, in particular, you'd picked out the idea of like a Glenn Burke movie. Yes. Which is, uh, there's a sports element and more too. That'd be great. Well, the the and more is that he was the first out baseball player in yeah. history and did not have a very good career because of persecution and prejudice and all that stuff. And that is the ultimate biopic is persecution. We go back to yeah. the Daniel Inouye story. Same thing. But this is a sports movie too, which makes... My heart sing because I love sports <laughs> and I love sports movies. He was uh, even a Dodger, so there you go. He was a Dodger for a very brief period of time and had a run-in with Tommy Lasorda, who was a manager who had a gay son as well, Tommy Lasorda Jr., who died. And you know, there are lots of questions about whether or not Tommy Lasorda was accepting of his son's homosexuality. You know, the cause of death based on what Tommy said about how Tommy Jr. died, all these things. It's a very seedy sort of unfortunate aspect of that story is the, is the Lasorda aspect. Yeah. But he goes on to retire after four seasons, had an unremarkable career despite being a very talented player. And he says uh, to the New York Times, prejudice drove me out of baseball sooner than I should have, but I wasn't changing. Uh, that prejudice just won out and he had to leave at the age of 27, which is Man. very, very early for a baseball player um, who had any sort of talent. Yeah, so, if, if people don't follow it, you usually retire closer to like 40. Uh, yeah, like 35-ish. <laughs> yeah, he, he, he left a lot of money on the table. Yeah. Um, but the interesting piece about this besides the obvious biopic gristle of the prejudice, is that people allege that he invented the high five. So Dusty Baker hit his 30th home run in the last game of the season in October of 1977, and Burke raised his hand for reasons no one seems to know, and Baker just slapped it because he didn't know what else to do. Because he was just, he was high on cloud nine, he's like, I'm just going to hit this guy's hand, Fuck. And then that became the high five. And then Burke used that as some sort of code in San Francisco to meet other gay men for oh. sexual rendezvous, according to what I'm reading here. <laughs> Man. Burke used the high like, five with other homosexual res residents of the Castro district of San Francisco, where it became a symbol of gay pride and identification. That's that really cool. Yeah. 
That has been as thoroughly co-opted from its original intent <laughs> Apparently as like, so. humanly possible. Well, then we started slapping each other on the ass, and then it was like, that's not gay. High fives are gay. <laughs> I think it's a fascinating story because you don't think about athletes being gay at all. You don't think yeah. about any gay athletes, even though Jason right. Collins came out as an NBA player, that he, he was gay. Uh, this is a story that happened in the 70s when it was especially difficult to be out. Um, you know, around yeah. the Stonewall era and all of those those big uh, social movements around trying to, to make gay rights an issue that people took seriously. Uh, and then adding the sports element into it, you've got the sports movie, just like in, in the Inouye story, you have the war movie. So it's a couple different genres. And he's an African-American, so you can then have the, the diverse aspects of it. I think it would be a great story. But inevitably, Hollywood would try to find a way to make him less gay. He right, died of right. AIDS, but it's like, oh, no, no, no. He just had a really bad cough. Right. <laughs> like, come on. And, and just, just for the record, I would call this movie High Five because yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. really more about the creation of the High Five than it is about him, I think. I think I want to know how he did it. Because I, yeah, I almost want to hang on that moment, too, because it's like Dusty Baker is another baseball player, hits a home run, and then Glenn Burke like runs out of the dugout and just holds his hand up waiting for him. And then I guess Dusty, like that, that pressure of someone's been left hanging was so strong that even before it was invented, <laughs> it transcends. Like, oh, I got to do it. Yeah. Like, <laughs> oh, there's also a, there is a 30 for 30 film apparently about this, about yeah. the creation of the high five. So seek that out. And, uh, you know, don't steal my idea for a movie, please, because I'm hard at work on this script. <laughs> hard at work. Depicting it in, in fiction and shaping it as a narrative movie, I just really like that idea, because especially it seems like Burke had to kind of hide his sexuality as best he could because he just wanted to play, but then his teammates just figured it out because he wasn't going to the same bars as them. There's a lot to that struggle as a film. You could mm -hmm. make a lot out of that. Yeah, yeah so, I mean, same thing as the imitation game. It's It's about, like... You want to just do your job and be yourself and people kind of don't allow it because they just figure it out. And, yeah. it, and you know, I read that that uh, the team wanted him to get married. They wanted to, like, hire yeah. a bride for him. Jesus. <laughs> like, is this really necessary? Yeah, it said uh, uh, Dodgers team vice president Al Campanis offered 75 grand and a free honeymoon if Glenn Burke married a woman, <laughs> uh, that was a thing he was offered. And uh, here's the problem: is then uh, you, you, have to, you then have to stay married to her for the rest of your life, right? right. <laughs> if you get divorced, you owe me seventy five grand and two tickets to Hawaii. <laughs> but what a story! What, what a great yeah. story! Great. Too far, so far, two for two is, is what I said. <laughs> Andrew, you'd picked out the Diaz brothers. Oh yeah, as, as some people, and I, I'm not that steeped in MMA or. or so this, yeah, yeah, this is the biggest stretch. Thank you for humoring me on this one. So Nick and Nate Diaz are uh, from Stockton, California. That's uh, my neck of the woods. I'm they are, say. yeah, and they are sort of the uh, like bad boys of MMA or the classic bad boys of MMA. They're basically these like. You know, kind of wrong side of the track kids. Um, they tell stories about how they started in jujitsu because they were so poor that they would go because the guys at the gym thought it was funny that these teenagers were there and they would buy them a burrito after every class. Wow. And so that was like <laughs> other shit. But they're also like sort of famous for being like the most like fuck you athletes of of the time they're like incredibly good at jujitsu have this weird boxing style are kind of like also rands but fan favorites so so it's a little it would be in terms of how it would feel it would feel probably most like eastbound and down but with two latino maniac brothers <laughs> I think that's 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 pretty reasonable about what the trajectory of their their lives are but basically uh you know uh Nick recently I think he had like a two or three year ban because they found THC in his system which is like wait. several times longer than they give people for. Oh wait, did I say something? Isn't, isn't THC just like the active ingredient? Yeah, in marijuana. Weed. Yeah, just weed. Oh, okay. Yes. Th yeah, I just hesitated because I was like, why would they suspend so long for that? <laughs> oh, oh, that's yeah, crazy. Yeah. No, no, it's 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 all for PR. It's it's crazy town. But he wow. also is like in multiple YouTube videos, po press conferences, like smoking a vape. Yeah. 
Like he does it openly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They still punish him anyway. I mean, basically, <laughs> they they just hate him because he's a pain in the ass, and he's all. And he admittedly kind of has overvalued his. He's basically like, I'm not stepping in the ring for less than seven figures anymore. And it's like, me neither. Yeah, of course. I mean, we're all in the same boat. <laughs> uh, but you, but I, I just kind of like they're like the bad boys of the early days of the UFC and and uh, before that, uh, Strike Force and all these other sort of fight organizations. It it would be a comedy, and as far as the brothers' current lives go, no real character growth or arc. <laughs> <laughs> Not dissimilar Perfect to comedy, to yeah. Eastbound. You know, they kind of uh, they kind of are like come in with. Uh, Big heads get way too much fame, and then their unwillingness to compromise. Actually, here's the arc. Their unwillingness to compromise uh, gets them their pariahs from the UFC, but they have the love of Stockton, California. I like that. Wow, beautiful. That's all I, I love Stockton. That's a lovely town. <laughs> like, because I, I was trying to find out more about him, and there was an ESPN story where it was Nate was uh, trying to just negotiate for that seven figures and try to get that money. And so uh, Dana White, who runs it, and another executive, like, went out to talk to him. And then Nate worked it. So after they negotiated, they swung by the mural of Nate in Stockton. <laughs> <laughs> he, like, got him to take a picture there with him. And, yeah. Like, Great power move. I love it. Like, that's that's the way to negotiate is I mean, we'll see my mural after, you know. It's, you know, <laughs> I, I think it's, to me, it's also like they they are, like, some of the characters are there are others that really bridge at least the vibe between pro wrestling and MMA. It's like they have that kind of big heel personality. People fucking love them. I remember one of Nate's moves. I can't remember when it was, but he was like, so they're like wrestlers and grapplers. They're, that's their their bread and butter. This guy was running from him and he just laid down in the middle of the cage, like kind of like in a, a, a Costanza repose kind of <laughs> kind of deal. And it's like, you know, essentially like jump in, man. I'm going to choke you out or break your arm. But, you know, come on, I'm lying on the ground. What do you want? <laughs> Oh, yeah. great fit. Really good. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I do love the the unchecked hubris of UFC fighters. Yeah. They just have <laughs> no chill whatsoever. And why would they? Yeah, they <laughs> crazy people. Beat everyone up except for like 12 other dudes. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's just a weird story about people of color. And also, who knows? I mean, there's probably several decades more of their biography to be written. So sure, or maybe not. <laughs> like, yeah, maybe knows? it'll just fade into obscurity in yeah. Stockton, California. Just stocking it out. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I also I think the only UFC movie I've ever seen is Warrior. Right, mm-hmm. like the only narrative movie in that sport, and that's just very serious. There's other stories to do. Like there's some funny story like this to, oh, to yeah. make out of that sport that tons of people like. I honestly think that that's the the big like money on the table for most combat sports movies is they should be comedies. Like Creed's great, but you're like, come on, this shit, it's more dumb than inspiring, honestly. <laughs> Wasn't there a, a Kevin James movie about UFC? Oh, yes. Here yes, comes, here the, comes boom. the boom. Yeah. Oh, I don't know that, that one. That was a comedy. Okay, that was cool. a comedy. But is the joke yeah. that Kevin James is a UFC fighter and like doesn't Yeah, have yeah he's very yeah, overweight yeah. and out of shape. Yeah. 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 That's, that's, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, just think, I think we can fat. do more with just like the... The lunacy of the characters. Like yeah. everyone involved in combat sports is a charlatan, you know, a narcissist, immense amounts of hubris, which is the amount of hubris you need to think I can step in a cage with another human being who's really good at fucking people up and fuck them up. Let me let me yeah. uh, give you a counter argument. Mm. Oftentimes with professional wrestling movies, it's very hard to replicate the pageantry and the personality of these characters in a movie because it's another layer of artifice on top of mm-hmm. an already scripted uh, entertainment. Yeah. So how do you then take those characters and all that stuff and and make it compelling as a movie? Because you can think about like Ready to Rumble, No Holds Barred, all the wrestling movies didn't quite work. Even Ali, mm-hmm. which is about a real very important person, was Will Smith able to be as charismatic or as compelling as the real person? Right. Like, can you make a, a UFC movie where it's as interesting or or even, you know, relatively close to the real people? I think, to me, the the way to do it is a little bit what you're, you've identified with the problem with a lot of the pro wrestling movies is that they they 
spend too much time thinking about the pageantry in inside the ring. And, and it's also, especially for pro wrestling movies, so hard to define the stakes because you're like like in, in The Wrestler. They're all well, interior stakes in that movie. Though. Yeah. It's, it's, it's him trying to do because it. Because it's not thing. about winning the wrestling match. Right. It's it's and it's so hard to like break people out of that emotion, even if you I think know logically, like it's not about this. It's about making the jump from the top rope or whatever the hell. But the fight choreography in Creed was like really good. But that shouldn't to me be the drama because it's like, you know, it's all the behind the scenes lunacy that is to yeah. me the best part. Yeah. I don't know. yeah, it's just an yeah. easy thing to to go to the visual. Yeah, like the, yeah. The, the mono mono combo. Yeah, but it's like okay, we've seen it before yeah. a million times. But you know, like a lot of fighters say, it's like the real the real tough part is like honestly, it's like cutting weight in the two weeks before. Like the ring is over uh, in like twenty minutes. You yeah, know? <laughs> it's like going into like negative calories and and sometimes negative hydration. For like fucking two weeks, <laughs> yeah. terrible. Yeah, people die from that shit. Yeah, and comedy maybe you can blow it out. Well, even like that one specific thing. I think there's an episode of It's Always Sunny where they uh, they make a drink for yes uh, fighters way, yeah, made out yeah. of crows, yeah. and uh, it's so bad that it makes you throw up a lot. So it accidentally becomes very popular with, with the UFC guys. Oh man, <laughs> that whole business is such a just charlatans and criminals all over the place. It's great. <laughs> Today's show is sponsored by Dropout, a new ad-free subscription service bringing you uncensored hilarity from the brains at College Humor. Did you know I used to work there at one point? It's great, and they're very fun. And Dropout is the place to be for all new parodies, exclusive comics, and original content like the brand new series Total Forgiveness. Total Forgiveness is a show where Grant O'Brien and Allie Beardsley are two real-life friends who go head-to-head in this agonizing competition show to prove they'll do anything to pay off their student loans. They're trying to win forgiveness of the loans with $70,000 on the table. It's real friends with real student loan pressure doing real dares. It's like a prank war, but with prizes, and it's available exclusively on Dropout. So sign up now for your free trial and start watching Total Forgiveness on Dropout today, or watch on the app, available in the App Store and on Google Play. You'll also get access to a members-only Discord channel that connects you with a community of creators, cast, and other Dropout fans. And for a limited time, use the code CRACKED to get 10% off when you sign up at dropout.tv. That's dropout.tv, code CRACKED. Folks, did you hear that podcasts are the new TV? Uh, you, you just heard it from me. That's the thing we say at Earwolf. And there's a new Earwolf podcast that I hope you'll check out because it's an amazing cast. Steve Berg, Felicia Day, Colton Dunn, Janet Varney. What? All four of them? That's bonkers. Well, all those people are on a new show called Voyage to the Stars. It's like a sci-fi sitcom for your ears. They start with a great script, they hand it to a bunch of funny people from TV shows like The Good Place, those people I mentioned, and then they improvise away and give you a a sci-fi adventure that I'm really enjoying so far and I think you'll like it too. The gist of the plot of what's going on, it's a crew of misfits boarding an alien spaceship and they wind up on the wrong side of the universe. Each episode they try to get back home. You know, Star Trek Voyager, great show. This is like a very, very funny version of that, also with completely different characters and original situations. It's great. So look up Voyage to the Stars in your podcast app and subscribe so you don't miss an episode of this great fun show you can hear right now. One thing to repeat from the top of the show, I'll keep it very brief in case you already heard it. The Cracked Podcast is going on its first ever tour, and I'm very pleased to announce the guests for those shows. It's really cool. In Chicago, April 11th, my wonderful guests are comedian Sarah Sherman, journalist Maya Dukmasova, and historian Jane Daly. In St. Paul, I'm joined by the also wonderful comedian and podcaster John Moe, comedian Chloe Radcliffe, and historian Elaine Tyler May. I am thrilled to say those names, let alone know that I get to talk to all those people in the near future. And I hope you'll be there. Links to get tickets to see that happen are in the footnotes. Get them before they're gone. Well, and let's look at another person. This is way back in history. I was thinking there's probably a movie in Victoria Woodhull, who was, among many things, the first woman to run for president of the United States. She did it before women could vote, uh, and she founded her own party 
It was called the Equal Rights Party. She ran in 1872. She claimed that Frederick Douglass was her running mate, and he refused to be. He just wasn't interested. (laughs) But she was that kind of sort of wild, out-there advocate of equality uh, before women had it. And we're allowed to. That's amazing. (laughs) That's awesome. So Frederick Douglass, just not interested. Yeah, no, he was like, no, I'm campaigning for Grant. I have no interest in in running with you. Uh, I'm not going to do that. And she also was uh, the first woman to address Congress in 1871. And she used it to say that the 14th and 15th Amendments meant that women could vote. And Congress was just like, no, you can't. Then they moved on. Uh, <laughs> so just like now. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. She's not listening. Well, she, yeah, and she, uh, th- it's like still a struggle. And so she could be uh, someone to tell the story of and like make a movie out of it. If I could pitch a title for it. It would be, oh, I'd vote for a woman, just not that woman. <laughs> it should be called that woman. There we yeah, go. Yeah, and then it just you you could see that line echoing through history with every every woman presidential candidate. <laughs> <laughs> uh, did I read correctly that she was an advocate of free love? Yeah, she lived a really interesting life. She publicly advocated for free love in like the 1870s yep. when no one was. Uh, and she at one love point. Love should cost money. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> My love do cost quite a lot of things, actually. <laughs> and, uh, and she at one point lived with her husband and her ex-husband and an additional lover just all at once, like in one place. And then also she and her sister had probably had some kind of relationship with Cornelius Vanderbilt. And then they were like paid off by the Vanderbilt family to go away. And so then they used that to try to become stockbrokers and started like a brokerage on Wall Street uh, before any women were part of the stock exchange at all and allowed to. She was basically just crazy enough to try everything that would eventually be a thing and and a lot of things that ought to be things. That's great. It's great. So who do you see playing her? I also, I like tried to double check, like, is this happening? And uh, <laughs> in March of 2017, there was a deadline story that maybe Brie Larson would do a movie of her. But there's been absolutely no anything about it since then. My guess is she's too busy with Captain Marvel. I don't mm-hmm. actually know that. But she would maybe be good if she wanted to like lean into it. Yeah. This almost feels like like a Werner Herzog level of like focus and lunacy. Yeah, that like like obsession, just like like <laughs> I must just push like this boat down the river, trying everything. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Even when she was a kid, uh, she grew up very poor, one of ten kids. Her father decided that she and her sister would be uh, just do an act where they're traveling clairvoyance. Uh, so they just did like road shows all over the eastern half of the country, pretending to be clairvoyant and psychic and stuff. And that was like her childhood. That's <laughs> what she was God. up to. Is this? Aren't most biopics about people who grew up poor ultimately? Like, can uh, you yeah, name a good yeah. one that's about someone who's like, well, he was you know, pretty rich or like, yeah, great middle class family. I think they hide it if they were too. Yeah. yeah, like they'll they'll do the story, but they'll either pretend they were poor or just not talk yeah. about it. Or we're yeah. making fun of them, like Vice, where it's like yeah. Dick Cheney was perfectly <laughs> successful and <laughs> continued to be successful the rest of his life. <laughs> but that's the American narrative, right? It has to be like, oh, we we pulled ourselves up from our bootstraps and like we're we're hustlers. I mean, she I. I do love how she feels like basically just like a female Trump, like just kind of like willing to do anything for publicity, like understood that that's the only important thing, like sort of because that seems to be the through line. It's just like she does what she wants as long as it gets her attention. Well, like an, an extreme low status Trump. Like, yeah. <laughs> like all the things that make Trump terrible yeah, are yeah, gone. Yeah. Uh, but it's it is that like passion for uh, press yeah. and and attention. Well, yeah, what yeah, if yeah. Trump was yeah. a woman? How would how would we ugh, perceive ugh. Trump if he was not a man? But that, I think that's a very reasonable. That's almost why this is like such a thing worth seeing. You know, now or soon, which is like, yeah. yeah, if a woman acted like Trump, they wouldn't be shown the light of day. You know, it's just like they they're you know right. everything that's positive about positive in quotes about Trump, like is seen as a negative, you know, and and all powerful women, like all the, all the traits that like powerful men have are viewed as like negatives when it's women. Well, and and with Victoria Woodhull too, like it's someone who is a woman and living pre women's rights of pretty much any kind. Like she, she was like, women deserve to vote. How should I argue for that in the, in the public? I'll just run for president. Like I'll just make a point of it. Like you'll have to tell me, why I shouldn't be president while kind of admitting I am a human, so I'm allowed to run. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
that's right at the edge of uh, people. To, like at that time, people are way more comfortable with saying people who are humans are not human. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, <laughs> we're we're in, we're in just about the peak era for well, Jesus, and the rest of uh, human history, I guess. But other than that, yeah, yeah, <laughs> peak I, dehumanization time. I think this would be an excellent post Oscar role for Lady Gaga. Oh she yeah. Yep. Should be great. I know. Yeah. Yeah. That is actually She really even looks good. like her kind of. Look, yeah. she's got that same nose that you just oh. can't help but want to rub with your index finger. <laughs> <laughs> we'll uh, we'll footnote a picture of uh, her so you can see. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. uh, you're, God, that's just such a good. You're welcome. That's, the that's why I'm here. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, that's Ooh. it. We're, we're making this happen. Yeah. Yeah. This is great. Let's, uh, let's steamroll another one. And, oh, yeah. and we're looking at Marsha Lucas who uh, is still alive, she's 73, uh, but Dave uh, he picked out in particular that, yeah, this person could could be a movie. Well, I work. think what's interesting about Marsha Lucas is that she has greatly influenced so much of movie history without being given any credit for it. Yeah. Because of her divorce from George Lucas, who ends up, you know, revealing himself to be a very cold dispassionate, boring person. Yeah. Yeah, Boring is the word. Like someone who's so interested in like playing with model trains that he can't like talk to his wife. Yeah. (laughs) Except except the model trains end up being in a movie that makes a billion dollars one day. Yeah. You're, you're trying to tell me that the writer of the monologue about Padme (laughs) being like rough sand or something yeah. Uh, whatever it was, uh, that guy. Good. That guy's weird about emotions of people. <laughs> Shockingly, Tell me that. yeah, I know. Oh man, weird. But <laughs> if, if, if you if you read anything about what she contributed to the first Star Wars, it's almost exclusively emotional beats, like yeah. important emotional beats. <laughs> like it was her idea to keep the kiss between Luke and and Leia. Yeah, which he was like, oh, we got to lose that. They're laughing at it, and she's like, well, no, that they enjoy it. <laughs> It's like oh, a beautiful, man. like wonderful <laughs> moment between these two characters you've come to love. Right. He doesn't understand that. George, laughter can be positive. Yeah. <laughs> killing killing oh. Ben Kenobi was her idea. He's like, I wanted to kill the robot. I wanted to kill 3PO, but he's like, I need them to survive the movie because the movie's about the robots. No one thought when they saw Star Wars the first time that it was about the robots. Right. It's unbelievable. I genuinely am just like, what did you want out of Star Wars, man? Like, what is it that you... We found out when yeah. he made the prequel trilogy. He wanted true. people talking in a very stilted way about the Force. Yeah. Well, And we should say she uh, she married George Lucas in 1969. They were together till 1983. But before that and during, she was also like a professional editor. Like She Correct. was working with yeah, uh, she, Scorsese and, and other people, too. She's the yeah. only, yeah. only one uh, who won an Oscar for the original Star Wars of the two. It oh, was her. for the for the editing? Yes. That's amazing. Yes. He, he <laughs> I didn't know has that. never won an Oscar for Star Wars, but his wife did. His ex-wife. She also grew up in Modesto, which is near Stockton. So this is really a 209 yeah. episode because I'm from Merced. So it's like the three biggest towns. So she moved out with him and you know they worked together and, and, and she got a reputation for being one of the best editors in Hollywood. Yeah. But because they couldn't make it work because he was distant and cold and, and, and worried more about, you know, making movies and his projects and stuff than her. They get divorced. She gets like $50 million from the settlement and it's kind of written out of history. So I yeah. think it would be really interesting to focus specifically on the making of Star Wars. Oh, I and like that. And see it as yeah, a like relationship drama. Yes, yeah. a relationship drama between these two and how, you know, he kind of learns about humanity from this person and then as he develops more and more success, retreats from that humanity because it makes him uncomfortable and he doesn't have to anymore. He had to for the first Star Wars, but by the time he gets to Empire where he's self-funding it and then Jedi where it's like, okay, we're we're wrapping this up and, you know, everybody is in love with this thing and it's it's cemented. He doesn't need people. Mm. And then he retreats into his his world in, in Marin County and doesn't come out until 1999. You know, Man. it's a it's yeah. a weird story. Yeah. And then Temple of Doom is is basically about his divorce and, and Spielberg's divorce. 
Yeah, those guys were really on parallel relationship <laughs> tracks, weren't they? Yes. That is that is because I I've heard Temple of Doom entirely described as a Spielberg divorce movie, but it is also a Lucas divorce movie. It's because she because she made suggestions on Raiders when they were together, mm-hmm. and then uh, they were split up. And <laughs> well, <laughs> apparently, so apparently, Marion wasn't going to even come back at the end. Right. And she had to Why say, would she? people yeah. are upset that the love interest is just, she disappeared. Yeah. <laughs> Did she get off the <laughs> island? Is she okay? Did she get nuked by the Ark of the Covenant? Nobody knows. Is there, <laughs> I feel like this is like a, a story that I've heard a lot, which is like, especially in this generation, it, it's a, it remains a problem, but you know, there are not nearly enough women directors that are allowed to do big budget things. Right. And it's it's like you hear it with like Tarantino and, and with so many folks, it's like, their editors are women who save everything. <laughs> oh, yeah. Scorsese, he worked with, uh, was it Thel- Thelma Schoonmaker for a mm-hmm. long, long time? Mm-hmm. Uh, that is such a thing. Yeah. yeah, I feel like it's just like, like you know, a little bit how, like, you know, perceptions of things change. But there is an element of, like, especially in that era, like, editing's kind of like the women's work of the of the film world. And it's like you see it again and again. It's like editors save alleged geniuses you know genius men's asses over and over and over again and you're like i always assumed that women uh were forced into editing because it looked like a sewing machine the editing i'm sure (laughs) you're pressing like a button with your foot and there's a lot of like it looks like the same sort of activity so i was like oh yeah women should be hunched over this giant hulking machine with these this like goggles that you put on your head and you're pressing a button with your foot but now it's it seems more like it's not a woman's job anymore. It's because I think, men have yeah, taken yeah. over. over I mean, it's a little roles. bit like uh, like the world of like fine dining. It's like every like everyone's mom has to cook, but all the chefs are men, and they're like, all right, exactly. fucking whatever. And, and, but ca- <laughs> casting directors are still mostly women, which is interesting because in the same way that editing is often about bringing the emotion out and finding the beats that connect with human beings, which men who are directors often don't know how to do Christopher Nolan being one of them. Uh, (laughs) Casting directors have to find people who can elicit empathy and, or, or hatred or whatever that emotion is. And, and maybe that's why women were forced into that role because it's like, Oh yeah, they can, they can sort out and and suss out, you know, real people and, and, and emotion and that kind of thing. But guys can't do it. I don't know why that's the case. And I love that framing you suggest for a biopic about it where they're just making Star Wars. And so each of these things she's suggesting can be can kind of play out that dynamic and that that yeah. human thing. Or or, or can illustrate things that George is not good at. Like you see the parallels between how he responds to the material in, in Star Wars, the dailies, to yeah. how they relate to each other when they go home. I think it'd be really, really interesting. Yeah, uh, but of course the flaw in it is who's ever heard of Star Wars? Right? I know you have to film. explain. There's the no whole hook. Thing. <laughs> It'd be terrible because she apparently one of her suggestions, or not even a suggestion, just as she was editing the original script, had the Death Star trench thing be Luke has to take two passes at it. Like he just misses the first time and then you have to go all the way back around and have him do it all over again. <laughs> and so among other things, just in her edit, she was like, nah, just one time, obviously. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Really stupid. You just take two shots, man. We got two, two, two torpedoes. Just fire again. <laughs> I could not even imagine sitting through another the one of those. Like, really? Oh, man. Wow. Just Star Wars straight up, by the way. I, I know this is because my brain has been rotted by like phones and whatnot. <laughs> Even that is like a little slow for me now. Well, and I'd be curious to hear from listeners. Uh, but I, I have a, a friend with young kids who says his kids like the prequels better. Uh, that oh, they yeah. just I feel think, like yeah. a, a modern movie and, yeah. and it moves in a way that they're used to. I just think the originals are for kids like a you know a couple of battles, a lightsaber, the picture of a lightsaber. Yeah, That's I think it. I think we're there, but at the same yeah. time, those kids have to grow up and then take all of our jobs and then become the people yeah, yeah, who sure, control sure, the sure. media and culture and yeah. be like the original Star Wars sucks. Yeah. Here's why, bro. Yeah. <laughs> One, it's boring. <laughs> Two, there's no hot chicks. Three. <laughs>
That's enough. That's a that's a good reason for a movie to be. I got boring. two reasons. Yeah. Plenty. All right. Anyway. Slam dunk. So Marshall Lucas, I definitely think should be a movie at some point, but hard to get the rights to Star Wars to talk about it. And George Lucas yeah. would probably sue someone. <laughs> it's not. Wait for him to die. I'm just gonna throw us way back into history now again. Uh, this guy is named Benjamin Lay, and he's one of the weirdest stories in all of early American history. And it's, I think it's so weird. It's why people don't know about him, but he was one of the first abolitionists in the country. He was also a very, very small person. He was only a little over four feet tall and he was just running around Pennsylvania doing like public stunts to try to convince people because even in the North, there was still slavery uh, when he was alive in the late 1600s, early 1700s. So he was just doing crazy stunts as a very tiny person to try to end slavery in Pennsylvania and completely hated for it, even though he did a lot to make that change and make it happen. Yeah. What kind of stunts are we talking about here? His most famous one. So he was a Quaker. Uh, He would eventually be disowned by the Quaker church for making too much trouble about ending slavery. (laughs) Uh, So that's where that church was at this time. Uh, But in 1738, he went into a Quaker meeting house and it was a service where anybody can just speak. There's no single priest or minister or anything. And so he goes in with, he had prepared a Bible that he hollowed out. And then in the hollowed out Bible, he put a bag of red berry juice. Uh, So there was a lot of like crafting here, a lot of of props. (laughs) So like the blacker Uh, the berry, the sweeter the juice. (laughs) (laughs) Got it. And then he he also had a sword. And so he did this big, long speech about how uh, slavery is a mortal sin and it's a terrible thing. And then he says, quote, thus shall God shed the blood of those persons who enslave their fellow creatures. And then he whips the Bible out, throws it down and stabs it with the sword. And because there's like prop juice in it, it shoots this red prop blood out of it, like all over the front row, you know? And, uh, and so then they drag him out of the church, partly because he's small, they just can't. He would do that kind of elaborate thing to try to convince his community to, to not keep slaves anymore at a time when even the northern states were like, what? It's fine. It's yeah. I think that'd be an awesome YouTube video. That's tight as hell. Someone should do that stunt <laughs> on YouTube. Yes. It would get so many views. Oh, yeah. man. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm in on this guy. Number yeah. one, being small, and number two, having the gumption to stab a Bible with a sword. I just like the production value. You're going to put yeah. a squib in your Bible for your <laughs> <Right>. sword? <laughs> Fucking awesome. Yeah, that's rad. He was also married to a fellow little person uh, for 17 years. Her name was Sarah Smith. And then he would live on... The closest he could approximate to a vegan diet, he only ate fruits, vegetables, and milk. Uh, So milk's not vegan. And he also made his own clothes because between slavery and animal labor, he didn't want anybody to be like sinfully making his clothing for him. Um, Imagine if that dude was around for Etsy. I know. (laughs) Killing it. Great. And he also, he wrote one book ever. It was called All Slave Keepers That Keep the Innocent in Bondage, Apostates. That was the whole title. Uh, and Ben Franklin printed it. We could probably like trim was, that a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> Workshop it. But he was, a, he was just an extremely intense person. And then a few years after he passed, um, in 1780, Pennsylvania was the first state to, uh, they passed a lot of gradually abolished slavery in the state. Nice. And so it, it wasn't him directly, but he like... Did some of the early groundwork for, you know, making everything better. And and no one's ever heard of him, even that's, though he's this, like, cartoon figure, you know? That's awesome. To be fair, white people are the ones that solve all the problems. So. <laughs> <laughs> Let's make a movie about this little white guy. <laughs> I just... Oh, man. This oil painting of him is unreal. He looks so dope. So who yeah, plays we'll him? Link that. I mean, I am not good at knowing of smaller people who are actors yeah. uh, who are available. Everybody says Peter Dinklage in this kind of situation. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And there's tons of other people who I'm sure are great, too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> He's got Henry Golding's disease. Yeah. He's the one guy. Nobody knows anybody else. That's unfortunate. I'm going to go with unknown. There's an amazing unknown out there to play. Hollywood would find be, a taller yeah. guy. Actually, <laughs> They'd be like, Jack yeah. Black will do it. He doesn't have to be that God, short. That sounds like, oh. so Hollywood. Exactly. That sounds That's exactly what I mean. like yeah. how that would go down. But it's just like the montage of him making his prop. Like in Batman yeah. Begins where yeah. he's building the suit, but instead he's building a yeah. Bible that squirts blood. Like trying different <laughs> berries. Yeah, what's the right <laughs> consistency and color for blood? Yeah, he, oh, used, he used something called a pokeberry. 
I don't know what kind of berry that is, but it's red and it was yeah. his like go to. So he, you're, he probably tested a lot of berries. He was like red raspberry, not, not too seedy, not not, not it, you know. Not good Lucky enough. for him, he only eats berries, so he's like <laughs> he's got him, right? yeah, and he's being productive. This rules. Yeah, I'm super into that. This might be my number one. Yeah. I really like oh, this man. one, yeah, because yeah. it's obscure, but also has a lot to say about our world and how we treat people who say things that seem antisocial at the time, but eventually with uh, the perspective of history, you realize that guy was right the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. I think the the big theme would be like how it is to be ahead of your time and how it is to go through that. Like it yeah. wouldn't even necessarily have a positive ending. Uh, I think it would be kind of, you know what I mean? Like oh, yeah. it would just be this story and then, and then just the astoundingness of it. Yeah. Yeah. In the same way that like the Harvey Milk movie, I mean, he's not being assassinated obviously, but the Harvey Milk movie, it's like this guy was smarter than everybody else and more charismatic and, and yeah. was leading the charge for, for, for civil rights and gets assassinated. But it was a really hard life when he was here to be on, on the edge of what was acceptable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's one of the the big uh, things I imagine with biopics is like coming up with a satisfying ending a lot of times for stories that aren't satisfying. You know, yeah. lots, of, lots of endings are not what you want or, and then if you find a happier point, it's, or a, you know, more dramatically fitting point, there's always that dangling tail of real life around after two. You're like, yeah. oh, well. I don't know. I hate to go back to Vice, yeah. but I think that it had the uh, the same problem. Is like, when do you end this movie? He's still alive, and yeah, he hasn't really suffered for his crimes at all. Yeah, and his <laughs> just his like, yeah. legacy continues <laughs> yeah. strong. <laughs> like, what is the reason why we're watching this movie again? Yeah, I mean, that would be sort of the argument for why we're not in a time to make a movie like Vice. Exactly, that was my number one problem with that movie. Is like, it's way too soon. Yeah. There's a fucking Brexit yeah. movie coming out. Are you Is there kidding really? me? It's like an HBO movie. There's a billboard for it. I saw Driving Out of Earwolf last time I was here. But uh, yeah, there's a goddamn Brexit movie it's while we're in yet. it. While we're in yeah, it. They haven't. Well, yeah. I mean, I think that's just because people are so obsessed with being a part of the zeitgeist and being, you know, something that people are going to talk about because we're talking about it now. So a story like Benjamin Lay might be relevant to today, yeah. but because it's super duper old, people are like, well, I mean, couldn't it have happened? If it had happened two weeks ago, maybe people would be more interested <laughs> in the movie. Ray, our impulse is to do like that Sarah Palin movie they did not long after Sarah Palin was a thing. When we have no perspective like on it whatsoever. <laughs> it's just like, well, these these things did happen. <laughs> and look at that famous person in the funny nose. <laughs> I kind of want to flip to this person because I feel like it's a current thing, but actually doesn't quite have those problems just because it's so strange and and not a, a president but uh, andrew you'd picked out wendy deng oh yeah this is, is a good one. <laughs> someone who i had heard of oh yeah because she was married to rupert murdoch but there's like a lot there uh, oh yeah and she's uh, 50 years old as we take this current person she's like the what? forrest gump of media to me <laughs> she's like <laughs> she's like the forrest gump of the world's worst human being that too yeah. it is un. <laughs> Believable. Wendy Dang uh, married Rupert Murdoch, broke up a, her first marriage. Was she, she uh, broke up the people that were basically like sponsoring her to be in, in it's the States? Because she's from uh, China. She's from China, yeah. yeah. And she is like, I mean, I will say this every time I hear the phrase crazy rich Asians, I don't think of fun. I think of this lady. <laughs> oh. I mean, she's basically a woman who was born in, in China, you know roughly, you know, sort of deep into the Cultural Revolution and somehow has managed to claw her ass out of that. I'm trying to remember if this is rumored or factual, but she had like an affair with Putin at some point. She definitely has a crush on old. Some kind of connection. Some connection with Putin. Married to Rupert. It's like the world's like, she's like a best of of the world's worst human beings. And, and she's super close with Jared and Ivanka, which is almost being close with Putin anyway. Like yeah, exactly. Of, you know, yeah, yeah, six like, degrees of Kevin Bacon. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, she's just a, a woman who's, she's like a, the, the Asian woman that was like, 
I'm going to turn old white guys, Asian fetishes and weaponize it and maybe destroy the world. <laughs> Let's see yeah. what happens. I don't know. Cause I you're just, right. She like initially broke up the marriage of the people who were sponsoring her in the U S and then apparently that guy who she married, which got her citizenship, then found out she was cheating on him with other people, supposedly. She's great. And then married Rupert Murdoch. <laughs> She's great. She's like amoral at best. Oh, yeah. she, d- didn't she have like a thing for Tony Blair, too? Yeah, I Vanity, right. Vanity yeah. Fair says in the, the fallout of her and Murdoch splitting up were some notes she wrote about how great like Tony is. <laughs> and they figure, yeah, Tony's probably Tony Blair, former <laughs> prime minister of the United Kingdom. He was at one uh, point a very handsome man. Yeah. Let's be real. Yeah. Oh, my God. And that they and Vanity Fair thinks they've spent at least one weekend in the same place together. And, and who knows? Unbelievable. Uh, and there's like speculation with the story of this person, but also just so many, like you said, like either high ranking and often terrible people. Yeah, it's unbelievable. <laughs> I mean, she's, it's just like a who's who of like right wing assholes <laughs> is her like is her, her bedposts. But don't, don't you think that she's probably like completely politically agnostic without selling out? Asian women of a certain generation, I I think amoral is cl- yeah exactly yeah because yeah, Tony, don't give Tony a fuck. Blair was uh, uh, relatively liberal for the time, I think she probably just is trying to amass power. I I think yeah. well yeah yeah and, and through like truly any means necessary. I will just say this so. Uh, while we were doing the research for this, I think I was like, oh, well, Winnie Dang. And then I was like thinking about it. And then I like texted, I'm like on this thread of like uh, Asian writers. And I was like, hey, is anyone actually working on a Wendy Dang biopic? Because I might want to write this. And my friend wrote back and was like, I don't know, but for sure the Murdoch family has spiked this at every conceivable level of yeah. Hollywood. <laughs> yeah. And she's like, you can decide this is at best career suicide and possibly life suicide if you pursue this. <laughs> yeah. You, so you, watch yourself. You need to hire a food taster. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, Wendy, Wendy Deng is like arguably, you know, has leverage over everyone on earth. Yeah. How, how powerful <laughs> do you think she is? Well, I mean, I'm just like, you can't be, you know, can't have fucked around with the people she's fucked around with. And not know all kinds of shit. And do you think it's strictly like their fetish for Asian women? I'm just saying that's the the a visible weakness. <laughs> I just wonder, like, <laughs> why is it that all of these uh, world leaders and despots are so interested in her? I don't know, man. I don't either. I don't know. I but, but that's I'm willing to find out though. <laughs> that's why that's why my Wendy Dang biopic will will explore. That's what my Wendy Dang biopic will explore. Get at me, independent financiers. <laughs> you probably have to go the succession route and do like a fake Wendy Dang. Well, that was the thing. It's oh, like yeah. I didn't watch succession, but I did hear there's not enough of that, right? Is there any Wendy Dang in, in or a Wendy Dang? Well, type so in there? so Brian Cox's character's uh, new wife is not Asian. Oh. She is um, okay. French, French Algerian, yeah, p- oh. potentially, if I remember correctly. I, it's a big missed opportunity. Also, there's a very real chance, of course, she's like just been Chinese intelligence all this time. Yeah. yeah. So there, when we mentioned Jared and Ivanka, there, the Guardian reported in January of 2018 that U.S. intelligence warned Jared and Ivanka. Uh, Jared Kushner, to be clear, they said Wendy Deng is lobbying for a garden in Washington, D.C. that might be a Chinese uh, intelligence operation where it would have a tower in it that could spy on the White House and the Capitol building. (laughs) And so don't help her with this garden. Also, watch out. And they were like, wow, she's our friend. Come on. Yeah. but these there's a, people there's a are lot running there. the country. It's uh, just like Keystone Cops. With, yeah. It's like the dumbest people on earth getting taken advantage by but like the. That's why the Chinese are the future. It really is. Smarter than us. Wendy and Dang. More aware of when people are lying. I'm right. just about a, it. A spy garden through Rupert Murdoch's ex. Like, I mean, it's it's kind of speculative. Also, wow. You know? And again, still, still to be seen. She, of course, may be the instrument that brings a. Uh, brings about global destruction or at least the destruction of the United States. So 
And there's the movie. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> it's like a strange love, but about Wendy Day. That's the, that's the way to go is like the, the, the thing about this movie that's perfect is you can tell kind of tell it from two perspectives, depending on who you want financing it. Because you can probably get Chinese people to finance this shit and have a pretty different ending. Yeah. If she's like oh. the hero. <laughs> yeah. Then uh, they'll all be like, yes, absolutely. We will make this film yeah. tomorrow. <laughs> anyway, get it. Just one other thing I'm thinking about off that, like. How do you think people writing biopics find their stuff? Like, like what's even sparking it other than listening to this podcast? But <laughs> exactly. like, how do they like if somebody sits down and writes the Lincoln movie, I wonder what led them to that or or uh, Freddie Mercury or whoever else. I think with the Lincoln thing, it was someone probably read that Doris Keenan's Goodwin book about Lincoln. And yeah, like, let's just do, let's make team of rivals into a movie, but truncated significantly because it's full of details. Yeah. Bohemian Rhapsody, someone was probably like, you know what? Queen songs are very popular. <laughs> we should do a Queen <laughs> biopic. Duh. So if we get a popular book about these people or like cultural work, then boom, they're in. Yeah. Can, yeah. can I just say I, the the grossest Hollywood version of this is I've heard, I don't know if anyone said it directly to me, but I know for a fact my friend's manager told him one of the easiest ways to get on the blacklist uh, is to write a biopic. Yeah. yeah. That, that is sense. like genuinely, I think there's a high business motivation even if it doesn't get made for some some reason you know that the hack is like not the hack as in hack writer but like the 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 like workaround or the thing that gets you inexplicably extra points is biopics with with people because i think it feels prestige and like people yeah. judges and and readers and executives like that kind of thing it's like as close as you can get to intellectual property that don't, no one owns. Yeah, maybe that's oh. it, actually. It's like, yeah. oh, it's a person's life. Yeah. That's it. It's IP. Yeah. It's IP right there. I think another another way people get ideas for, huh. for biopics and things of that nature is magazine articles. Yeah. You know? Oh, sure. Strolling Vanity Fair or, you know, whatever other ma- New York magazine, whatever magazine you read, and you read some feature about the Soho grifter or something. Let's make a movie about the Soho grifters life. Okay. I guess that'll be interesting to five people in New York, but those five people in New York probably are in the Academy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's it. the, it's like the, uh, the Amazon uh, studios of writing. You're like, write a biopic. Yeah. No one's going to watch it except for like the 25 people who matter. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Folks, that's the episode for this week. My thanks to Dave Schilling and Andrew T for spinning some potential Hollywood gold with me. So many amazing stories and and uh, just an amazing section of food notes, because let me tell you, I want you to know about all these people. I want you to be able to see those movies that we came up with in your head by reading what we read and seeing what we saw. I extra recommend The Portrait of Benjamin Lay, that ambitious and small Quaker freedom fighter of yesteryear. It's an amazing picture, and, and you can figure out your casting from there. Also, there are those many uh, kind of just scurrilous rumors we talked about involving Wendy Deng. They are very widely reported rumors. That's the one person on this episode where, as we said, it's hard to confirm a lot of the stuff, but partly because it's kind of happening right now with almost every major figure in the world. It's kind of amazing. Here's another thing that's going on. Links to tickets to our first ever Cracked Podcast Tour are in those footnotes. You can follow bit.ly slash crackchicago to get a ticket to see us in Chicago April 11th with guests Sarah Sherman, Maya Dukmasova, and Jane Daly. Then you can follow bit.ly slash crackedstpaul, you know, as in St. Paul, and get a ticket to see us in St. Paul, Minnesota on April 12th with guests John Moe, Chloe Radcliffe, and Elaine Tyler May. I can't wait. These are going to be amazing. Uh, also, just another fun thing that will be amazing, uh, our theme music on the show is Chicago Falcon by the Budos Band. Uh, also, the Budos Band has a new album coming April 12th of all dates. I'll be in Minnesota right when it drops. How will I handle it? I'll probably freak out. There is one song from that out now. You can just look up the Budos Band and find it and hear it and I think probably buy it. Uh, do whatever you do to hear music and enjoy their stuff. In the meantime, this episode was engineered by Jordan Duffy and edited by Chris Souza. If you love this episode, that's great. If you hated it, let me know about it on social media. That's right, social media. A space where you can see a tour poster of me talking to Abraham Lincoln and to a Minnesota Viking. Not the actual guests. It's just a fun cartoon. I will not meet historical figures. I'll meet amazing people. 
My Twitter account is at Alex Schmitty. My Instagram is at Alex Schmitzagram. And I'm on the wider internet at my website, alexschmitty.com. And I'm here to say we will be back next week with more Cracked Podcast. So how about that? Talk to you then. This has been an Earwolf production, executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Chris Bannon, and Colin Anderson. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Earwolf.